Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of our Called, Connected and Committed podcast. I'm Bola Alicia Ayorinde, National Education Lead for Racial Justice. And I'm Lorraine Prince, Head of Networks for Church of England Education Office. We're so excited today to have our conversation with Mariah Humphreys, who is a Muscogee Nation citizen, writer and educator. Through her experience navigating the tension between Native and white American culture, she brings Native awareness to non-Native spaces. With over 20 years of vocational ministry service, Mariah focuses on theology, racial literacy and reconciliation within the American church. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mariah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're excited too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Please, could you start with telling us a bit about your background and where you grew up and your heritage? Certainly. Well, I'll start off with history. Estongo, Mariah Jehodifkodos, Unest Meskogoki, and Tlaplako, which is simply, hello, my name is Mariah, and I'm a citizen of Muskogee Nation and a member of the Tlaplako tribal town. And in... Our culture, we don't say, I hope you're doing well today. We just, we don't have a welcome. It's just, I hope your body is doing well, your soul is doing well. Glad you're here with us today. So thank you for having me from across a little bit of water to come and join you today, but it's been fantastic. I am in the States, um, so I don't have the cool accent that my two uh, (laughs) co-hosts have here. Um, But thank you so much for having me. I was raised primarily in what we would call the Midwest of the U.S. And my mom was um, Muskogee, and my father is German, Scottish, and Czech. So in U.S. terms, I'm biracial. And I don't really like the term biracial or multiracial. I'm just trying to bring myself into just accepting I'm just Mariah. And so I don't really view myself as partial percentages, fractions, because we do so much of that in the States. We try to uh, diminish one another's identity by saying, I'm only half, or there's this um, wonderfulness that comes with, I'm full something, I'm full Native, I'm full white, or whatever it might be. And so I try to avoid those labels a little bit. I'm kind of in a resistance um, era of my life as I turn a significant age recently. I'm just trying to uh, bring people into accepting fullness. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. And my mom was a English professor, of all things. So it's a lot to live up to, absolutely. She was a professor at one of the first Native American colleges, which I love. And it was a lot to live up to, as I said. And so I I watched her, and she became ill when she was pregnant with me. And so she had rheumatoid arthritis and quickly became handicapped um, at the time. Um, we would call it handicapped, and she was bound to a wheelchair. Uh, she had to retire formally, and so she stepped into a different role of educator and then started educating primarily Native Americans who were pursuing a general education degree, so their GED. If they had to drop out of high school due to um, you know, just their situation in life, she wanted to walk them through and remain an educator, which I love. And I think I get part of my desire to educate others from her and watching her. And never at this hierarchy, it was just, how can I use my giftedness and my abilities to help somebody else? And I loved 
that about her, and she focused on studying, and she was a learner as well, which I think is really important. And I've got a history of higher ed, and one of the things that we often do is feel like at some point we've kind of succeeded and we've reached this platform. And I try to always remain a student of others, of myself, of my own people, and of other cultures. And so that's one of the things that I really try to do. And I think I got that from my mom. Um, But I also grew up in more of your Southwest region, which is where my dad was a pastor, which was complex because my dad is European. He is German, Scottish, and Czech. He is white-skinned. And he was a pastor at a Native American Christian church, which is rare, and significant for me in my life because it was the largest church in our area. So I got exposed to a bunch of different Native Americans, um, Navajo and Kiowa and Comanche and um, Apache, and just this beautifulness of watching people who may have looked like me um, physically, but represented such a different history and a story and a timeline and how they interacted and just part of our broader culture and the beauty of it, but also um, individuality and just how they had to navigate something that I also had to navigate, but it was differently because their situation was different. And so I could go on a long time, probably the whole podcast episode to talk about my history, but I think those things are significant because it really did bring me face to face with the complexity of identity, not only with being, um, you know, European and Native, but also with being Muscogee in a broader sense of what Native is. Um, where, you know, we're not a monolith. We were talking earlier about how there are hundreds, um, you know, specifically 574 current federally recognized tribal nations in the U.S. alone, not even talking about other nations in the surrounding areas and those who are not federally recognized. And so when you think about that, we kind of just have this general picture of what nativeness is. And it's really complex. Um, We are from different regions, and that comes with different issues and different histories and languages and cultures and how we navigate life. And so there's just a real beauty, and it's not a simple identity. I will just say that now. I do not speak for all of Native America. I don't speak for all of the Muscogee, right? I'm my own identity within a broader voice. And there are some broader topics that, you know, I can discuss, but my experience is my own and it definitely doesn't represent, you know, a Native American person sitting next to me. So I'm, I'm very careful with making sure that I don't speak on behalf of everybody. So as we talk today, you're hearing from Mariah and you may not be hearing from, you know, a Native American that that you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's just been a great journey. The way I was raised just gave me a very solid outlook on what it means to look at somebody else with full acceptance. And I haven't always practiced that well. Um, I have definitely fallen into judgment and prejudice on my own. Um, and I've had to really process that and navigate that through a lot of error and learning and um, and being harmed myself. And so it is something that I 
don't necessarily talk about a lot how I was raised, but there's just a lot of complexities that go with having a white-skinned father in a Native space and also being Native myself and just trying to process what that means when it comes to Christianity and um, Native identity. And it's just been, it's a lifelong process. And I hope I continue to learn more about myself and accept more about myself. But yeah, I'm kind of a Midwest girl, they would call it you know, the Kansas-Oklahoma area and then the Southwest girl. And it's it's been a pretty cool ride. I've, I've had the opportunity to be in some different spaces, but I, I'm definitely that part of the region of, of the U.S. and uh, proudly so. Wow. Um, so we had the privilege of listening to you speak to some pupils today. And um, I would have to say that every time I hear you speak, there is an awakening or a realization within myself. And um, my lovely colleague and I always have conversations around the friction between um, your your faith or the religion that you you um, you relate to or the way you choose to believe and your race and I would say especially the African transplanted into different regions and their relationship with Christianity and um, one of the pupils today asked you about your relationship to Christianity and to your native belief system. And you said that you don't see one or the other. You are. How long did it take you to come to that realization? How long did it take you to say, I am Mariah and there is no friction because I am who I am? I would say that's a more recent discovery or settling into that fullness of my identity so several decades in, I would say, into my 40s, I would say that's the time where I really started to just fully accept who I was without the societal um, stereotypes or qualifications of what, especially in a U.S. society, um, like I said, the percentages and the breakdown and the parts of me, that was really important for me to, it, it just felt very... I felt, it might be extreme, but I felt kind of controlled by what others thought I should be every time I said, I'm half Native American and I'm half white. And there was actually a friend of mine who said, you're not white, though. Your skin is not white. You do have brown skin. So you really need to tap into your um, European identity and I loved that she pointed that out. She did it very much in love. And I said, you're right. It it was um, not to the benefit of my father for me to focus so much on part, you know, quote unquote, of my identity and just leave the rest to be out there. And so I said, yeah, I, I need to embrace all sides and just see how well that those work because I, my blood is not shifted. My blood is not split. It all runs through the same body. And so I need to think of myself in that totality rather than partial or segmented, because that is exactly how I felt in our American society growing up. I felt the most accepted in a Native American um, home or church environment I think partially because physically I represented, I saw my representation. And so there was no need to question anything. I just was. And then that questioning really didn't come out until I was around non-Native um, people. 
specifically white in my experience. But as I get older, I realize that I'm even talking about BIPOC people in general. Mm -hmm. I'm even talking about other brown and black people not knowing really um, how to identify. Sometimes we just really biracial and then we're split in percentages. And it is, it's just really important to see myself in this totality in this person of who Mariah is. I loved that question today. There were some great questions from these students today, and that was one of them. And I came to the realization that, okay, if I'm looking at myself in the view of the most important, the most important part of my life, what is that or who is that? And for me, it's clear it's God, right? I identify as a Christian. I embrace my own Christianity. And God, how does God view me? Not even how my husband or my children or my family, my friends, people I look up to and fully embrace me. It's how does God view me? And so I really had to go back to the very beginning. So there's this book called The Bible. And <laughs> It was there this really a book called the Bible. There is, there is, and so so much so much of what we do is we skip over the first part of the Bible. As children, you know, we process creation and we learn about days and the, you know, everything was created and it was all of these things. And then we never talk about that as adults. It's if you if you missed it as a child, we don't talk about it again in adolescence or adulthood. We just kind of assume everybody knows how everything was created. And I realized that there's a part there where it says that, you know, humankind, man was created in the likeness of God. And I looked at that, and there's nothing to it beyond that, just created in the likeness of God. And there's no if, or, and it's just simply, we just exist in the likeness of God. And so there's no qualifiers there. It's just who we are. And then one of the parts that we look over the most says, and we were called good, and God, God called us good. Not if we looked a certain way, not if we represented a certain way. We're just called good because we're in the likeness of God. And that was a really big adult years revelation for me. It's like, I need to stop there and just accept that part and just really dig into that, the simplicity of it. But as we know with God and even Christ's words, sometimes the most simple are the most in-depth and the ones that we have to think about the most and process the most and really get our culture and our mindset out of the way and just look at the text. And that's where it really came for me. It was, that's it. I, and I felt whole at that point. Mm. It was a process. It was not a, a day or even a season. It was a period of time. I was like, this this is where I'm landing. And I can encourage other people to do the same thing. But for me, it really is, this is just who I am. I am created as a Native American woman. I identify and I live this life with the visual aspects of what it looks like to be Native American. And I know people are going to see me that way. But I'm looking at myself in totality, even the parts that other people don't see, only God sees. And that's the most important thing. And you would think that as someone who went to seminary, has been a, past, been a pastor's daughter, a pastor's wife, 
you know, does the work that I do, you would think that I would have come to that conclusion a lot earlier in life, but I didn't. And we were all students and we're always learning about ourselves. And that's where I just, I landed and it, it beautifully landed that way. Cause I was like, this is not a split. This is not Native American identity. This is not Christian identity. I am a Native American Christian. Mm-hmm. And that for me fits beautifully. Native Americans tend to focus a lot on creation. We protect land, what's above it, what's below it. We protect water. We have this connection to nature and this desire to see it protected and be able to um, keep things in their environments. And I think that is a beautiful way of looking at the beginning part of you know our story in the Bible as well. It is it just blends beautifully for me. So for me, there's no conflict. And I realize there are conflict for a lot of people, but for me, there's no conflict with that. It's, I am so settled into that. I'm like, no, that you can try to even talk me out of it. It's just not going to happen because that's just, I feel completely whole and at peace with knowing the person that I am was created intentionally. And so if someone else thinks that I should have been created a different way, that's their problem to solve, right? That's their that's their issue to have to work through, especially within the church. That's our big, that's just a big thing we have to work through with the broader church. Those who identify with Christ is getting our mindsets and any preconceived ideas of what should be done as far as a process or organization or a church and seeing the person as who they are. And that is through the eyes of God. And I think we have just flipped it too long and seen each other through the eyes of man and our own prejudices. And it has to be, it has to start with God and how we're viewed that way. Which kind of brought us to the, I mean, because that, when you spoke to the children about that, that resonated. Like I literally held Balalusia's hand because I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, that's exactly what it is. We are all created in the image of God. Yeah. It's that sense, isn't it, of defining our own identity that I think is really, you've made that so clear and it's so powerful, especially for our teachers, our leaders, children, young people to know that we don't have to be defined by these social constructs that tell Mm -hmm. us who we are, but actually our identity, you know, it's not stagnant, it's fluid, it will evolve, it will change and culture impacts on that as well, as as well as our faith and belief systems. Amazing, thank you. Actually, earlier we we discussed about the importance of acknowledging the past, and that's to build trust and and how that then contributes to reconciliation. Would you be able to share a couple of specific examples um, that highlight this approach in your work? I think one of the things, you know, and of course everything I say is from an American-centered mindset, right? So um, it may be a little bit different for people who hear me speak, but I think as I share things... I think there are other things that you could probably bring to mind. You're like, okay, that may not be exactly, you know, my experience, but yes, I can see it coming through this way. For me, it is extremely important with the work of racial reconciliation and this work of um, this mindset of cultural humility is we can't, I think we talked about this a little bit before, was we can't spiritually bypass things. It can't always be this is what we need to focus on rather than dealing with what has happened, whether we did it ourselves or not. I think that's one of the issues that we face quite a bit is that was people before. 
Um, it is definitely not something that uh, we did, but it may be a problem that we have to solve, right? It's it's in our hands now to correct so many things from the past. And I think as a church, you know, there are a lot of stained areas of our history. Um, whether we're here or in the U.S., there's a lot of things that we need to come to grips with. And one of the biggest lessons I've just learned in my life in general is learning to say sorry and genuinely being sorry for that. That's very difficult for me. It was a very hard thing for this lady to learn. And for me, one of the biggest things was learning to say I was sorry to my children. So, you know, my son and, and two daughters, as a parent, as a leader in their life, and as this example of what they should be as they get, you know, as they grow up, was to show when I was wrong. And as parents, we don't typically say, you should admit when you're wrong to your kids. It's normally like, no, we need to, we only need to show the best to our kids, you know, and they just need to do as I say and not as I do. And I think it has been one of the biggest lessons for me. And it made me kind of flip a little bit in my work, how I was approaching my, you know, being a parent. It was, I should also strive to apologize for atrocities that maybe that my people were part of, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, my European focus side or my native focus side, what are some things in there that I need to come to grips with? Because that's what I'm longing for other people to do when they're thinking about Native Americans. And I think as a church in general, it, we have to come to grips with what has been done in the past because that mindset, those actions may not be done today. We may not have the actions of Native removal in the States and Indian boarding schools and genocide. We may not be having those issues where I am today, but that mindset sure is there. Mm -hmm. And it was there from founding, right? We have this um, this orthodoxy of here's how we view brown and black bodies. And we're putting it in our foundational documentation. It is in our U.S., it's in the Constitution, it's in the Declaration of Independence. We're declaring how, um, you know, the broader uh, Eurocentric mindset in the U.S., how they feel about the Black body and how they feel about the Native body. And we're not fully human, right? We're a percentage, we're savage. And that sort of mindset was there in that moment. And it's just been drawn out into 2023 where we are today. And it's it's one of the biggest things I struggle with because it's needed. Um, I really feel like for there to be any sort of healing or reconciliation to begin, there has to be the vocal accountability of we did things incorrectly as a church. It may not have been me individually, but as a church, we have done some things that were harmful, that were unchristlike, um, weapon, you know, weaponization of scripture, and taking God's name and twisting it to justify atrocities done, primarily to you know black and brown bodies where I am, and that is something that's just needed. If we're not going to address those, it's going to be very difficult to have healing for those brown and black bodies, because 
our histories are in our DNA, right? We feel that from generation to generation. I mean, there's even psychologists that talk about that, that generational trauma. And just because we may not be facing some of those things today does not mean that we should not be correcting those things today. Because that harm and that distrust, I know for Native Americans, there's a strong distrust for Christianity in the church because of what was done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. And that weaponization of the Bible is a very conflicting, very conflicting for Native Americans specifically. And you have your history of slavery in the U.S. And anytime that you have a group of people who identify, I think even as just white, I'll say white skinned, and they have justified and deemed um, brown and black bodies as free to show violence against um, psychological violence, physical violence, um, spiritual violence is what we've seen throughout. Those are things that linger, and you just cannot have healing until that wound has kind of been brought to the surface because we're feeling it. I mean, we're women of color right here. We feel that. We're experiencing it. And it doesn't mean that we just get to jump over and say, yeah, now we're we're ready to heal. We can't heal until the person sitting across from us has said, I acknowledge what's happened. I acknowledge that pain. And there's this sincerity in trying to properly go about reconciling that. What does that look like to do that with those who identify with Christ? And what does that look like for you know more of the entities like the church and the global church and then the local? Because it has to, it has to correct history before we can go and move forward. It's so funny that you should say that because, again, when we were having the conversations with the pupils. And we were listening to the speech. And one of the young ladies was talking about the racial trauma that she is feeling. And, you know, I'm not specifically knowing how old she was, probably about 16. And that is something that within her DNA, she has felt that there is a hierarchy and that the color of her skin is at the bottom of the system. And the implications of what the church has done to ensure that that hierarchy remains. She fully was aware of that Mm -hmm. at age 16. So what do we do? I know you've got um, MariahHumphreys.com and showcases different resources to support reconciliation, but our pupils are not, they're not unaware of what is happening and how they are perceived and then how they in turn perceive themselves. So along the resources that you might have, what is there for them? What is there to help them with their perception of themselves? I think one of the things that we have to learn to do is listen to one another. Um, Not just those who may look like us or identify like we do. We have to be able to listen to others as well. And so my heart kind of broke for that student today whenever I was listening to her because it revealed that even within our brown and black broader community, we have things to also work on as well, mm. right? And not falling into that, really that trap, that manipulation of hierarchy. Mm. And it's it's one thing to see yourself in a space and, and see your reflection in students and in teachers and, you know, even administration. There's one thing for that, but there's another thing to be able to actually have them 
see you and hear you, not just have you be a number or a name, but they're actually looking at where you're coming from, where you have been, historically where you've been. So one of the things I feel like is really important is to really search out beyond yourself and look at the histories of others. And one of the things I've done the most is read from other authors of color that I may not identify with their history and where they are, or even location, but to learn more about what they went through and what they're going through. There's some really deep books out there that now have a young adult version. Um, I think those are things that are really important for us to realize as adults is when we're facing, I, I don't know about you, but the first time I faced racism, that was right in my face and I knew what it was. I just didn't have a name for it. I was in first grade. Mm-hmm. I was, what, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we just don't talk about in our schools today because children are too young to talk about that. Yet our children are experiencing it. And so it's something that we do have to talk about with our children. So we get to 16 and we have a student who doesn't have to say, I feel like I'm in a hierarchy. And I'm viewed because of the color of my skin. I am at the bottom of this hierarchy. And it causes division. And it causes um, strife. And it causes these these mindsets also in turn be like, okay, I'm not, you know, the lower part of your hierarchy. But all of a sudden you, you find yourself in conflict with people that you should be finding like brotherhood and sisterhood with. And so I think it's really important for... Um, us to just read from other authors. I one of the authors that I I feel like has has just some amazing things out there. The books are really deep, but you know, like the cast system. Cast is such a big book, stamped from the beginning. It, Let's talk about Isabella Wilkerson. Yes, Wilkerson. Oh, that was rev- that book. <laughs> I I often talk about that. As a writer, she writes, and it's pop culture, so you can yeah. quite relate to it. But I listen to the audio version of it because that actually helped me to process Mm. it but again just the acknowledgement of the hierarchy and how it was intentionally created and how other cultures came to America to understand it and implement them in Germany Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth it was so eye-opening to me to actually be able to put into words what I had felt for a long time right um, that there was a hierarchy and and we could talk and say that it's a caste system and then the proximity to whiteness will get you to the open door. Yeah. And I think, um, again, that's what our pupils feel mm-hmm. structurally and we're talking about institutionally also. So you can look at the church, you can look at our um, our schools. Yeah. They feel that. And I think a lot of the times work around identity is a way that we can like you say, come to a wholeness and a mm-hmm. wellness with yourself that I'm neither this or that or yeah. this. I am a whole and I am that. Yeah. I think whenever you see yourself that way, it's naturally starting to come that you see others that way. Mm-hmm. If you can view yourself in totality and wholeness and accept that, I can more easily look at the person sitting next to me and be like, they are also 
that because I, I quit using some of the terminology that I used before to kind of break down the identity of people and silo their identity that I would have used for myself. And when I quit using that for myself, I quit using it for other people. And even when they would try to silo themselves and say, well, I'm part this or I'm partially this, uh, you know, this culture, this culture. And it was more, okay, so you're, you know, you're just so-and-so. That's beautiful. I love that. You know, tell me about that. You don't have to add the percentages. You don't have to add the breakdown. Uh, you're just who you are. So just tell me about who you are. And it was because what was important, I, I felt like at times I needed to only talk about Native identity and I shouldn't talk about you know, my dad being white. There were other times where I really should focus on my dad being white because I was the only brown person in the room. And I wanted to be like, I'm also part white. It's like, you're not part white, your skin's brown. It's like, but my dad's white. And so there was, I had to really come to grips with who I was and how I viewed myself. And that has really helped shape how I see the people next to me. And I'm not perfect at it. I, this, this this mold is not complete, right? Like I am always being formed, but it really does shift in your self-identity to really accept that. Um, but it's so it's so hard to watch younger people struggle through that, especially when we are struggling through so many of the same things. Because when you view brown and black skin underneath the umbrella of whiteness or white supremacy, but just that idea of whiteness, because I think people of color can also fall underneath whiteness as well. And, you know, and uphold whiteness, I should say. And I think that is just something that we have to really work on amongst ourselves as well to be like, no, it's not just a um, binary issue within, you know, the whatever it is, we were talking about the paper bag mm. identity previously. And that's, we just have to be able to see each other as equal. We have to be able to see each other as um, worthy. Whatever anybody else is telling us, we have to view each other that way because we've become stronger that way. And I just feel like that is something that is so harmful when we start seeing um, brown and black students especially um, upholding that idea of, of whiteness and that hierarchy of... Uh, color of skin and where you're from and, you know, maybe even, you know, socioeconomic, you know, even classism that creeps in and that colorism that creeps into our societies. It's just really hard to watch. And it makes me wish I could go back and be very different as a teenager to do my part in trying to stop that at my at my age. But I wasn't. I I was very much mixed in with that and struggled through that. So it was it was very difficult to to listen to that um, student talk about that today because mm. I was like, that is, it's exactly what, it's exactly what we're facing. I think what you said, and I I don't think it should be a throwaway comment, especially about yourself, that you said this mold is not complete. I'm still work, you know, it's still working. It's a working process, progress, and I think we need to understand that again, as you said, Balalisia, identity is fluid. Mm-hmm. And it, you keep evolving with everything that you learn and especially everything that you learn about yourself. I always quote, like, you know, the best rap artists always talk about knowledge yourself, you know, especially Wu-Tang Clan and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's always about knowledge yourself and your connection to the godliness within you. And how do you strive to what, towards that? How do you listen to the voice of God within you to strive to the completion of 
when you leave this this earthly realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think you know our, our pupils need to, you know, we need to as educators be doing and talking a lot more about their identity and whether they see themselves. And that's such a great point, Lorraine, because if I think about our tribe in Brazil, um, our human development and our spiritual development are tied in together. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to sort of you know, for our children, young people who are talking about, you know, the things they're experiencing, you know, are they aware of that? Like, do they understand that, you know, maybe from their diverse belief systems or their cultures that they're intertwined and those two things coexist? And we've had recent conversations um, about spiritual development of our children, young people in our church schools in the UK. So I was wondering um, if you had any suggestions for how teachers and leaders can effectively support the spiritual development um, of our our pupils in our schools whilst respecting their diverse belief systems as well? I think spiritual development, especially within students who are marginalized, um, whatever that may look like uh, in the school that they're in, I think it plays a factor in how God is viewed sometimes. And... I think there needs to be respect or an acknowledgement, grace, maybe patience, all those things of where a student is spiritually and where they may not be, Um, which is complicated at times because we are talking about an academic setting, right? I mean, there are... There are some things that you expect them to to know at the end, and you know you kind of got to be graded and tested, and make sure that there's some things that are knowledgeable. But when you're talking about spirituality, that is something that's not just academic, and it is something that is you know within is always being worked on within yourself, and you can't put a grade on that. And I think that I've seen some spaces where whoever's in leadership. Um, if they really view each person as an individual, there's the collection that needs to be done and the academic rigor and those things, they have to be there. It's it's just part of the, it's part of being in school, right? But when it comes to spirituality, I think that there is a lot of grace that can be displayed there. Sometimes the most knowledgeable, in my experience, are sometimes the least spiritual. Um, just because you you can recite what's on a page does not mean that you're feeling what's being told on that page. And I think that um, as, you know, leaders and um, teachers, as they're in classrooms, to be able to see each individual where they are, to be able to encourage them to continue to search out on the spiritual side as they have the expectation. And sometimes you have to walk them through that, right? I mean, there's been times where like, this is, we expect this, you know, even as a parent, I expect this from you. There are some things that you have to do. It's just part of where you are in this, in this family and where you are at this age and in life. But we're going to be working through these other things. And what you've learned right now, you may not really put into your life for like another five, six years. You may never do it, but it is something that um, I think if there's some grace from your higher leadership, from your teacher on up of where are they in their spiritual walk, 
There is, yes, the the black and white of academics, but there's also that ebb and flow of spirituality. And so sometimes the ones who are maybe the quietest or aren't talking about it the most may be reflecting the most when it comes to what does it mean to have a faith, act that out. Um, Even a question today I was asked by a student was a very quiet question and kind of leaned forward to ask me, um, just a simple question. I think it was the one about home. Mm. It was. Why don't you, uh, you know, say that one? I think it's like, what you know? How do you if, you? if you could describe, I think it was describe yourself in one word of where you're from. And of course, they added, "You can't say America and you can't say home." It's like, oh, of course, you took out all the two major things. Um, but it was actually you that brought up. I would say God, and I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to tag on to that. I don't have to come up with something new. You said it brilliantly, and I was like, that's that acceptance of who created me and created me to be in this space, in this moment, knows everything about what I'm going to face, what I have faced. And that's where, because, you know, home is, for so many of us, reflects um, nurturing, comfort. But for a lot of people, home doesn't reflect that. But creation, how we're created, should always, and home can fluctuate, you know, I'm not home right now physically in my in my house, but I can definitely, you know, feel the presence of God. And that should always, you know, bring me to a space of just this is where I should be at any given moment. But I really feel like it really starts with not the students as much as it starts with um, your higher leadership down. Sometimes I think change comes from the lowest level, what we think of the lowest level up, but then these, this acceptance in our spaces of Christianity, we have to be able to view people who are um, learning from us. We have to be able to view them with grace and this nurturing while you can hold on to that academic rigor and those academics, but be able to really see them for who they are, really see them as individuals and not just this class that's going through and they all have to be at the same mark at the end. Each one of them are processing things differently, especially when we're talking about church and both an academic and spiritual space. Those can be very conflicting at times. And sometimes the most academic is not the most spiritual. And I I think sometimes they can be flipped and we need to recognize that. I have to recognize that when I think of even myself and, and people around me. And so I think that is the, that's the idea to be able to just see that individuality and nurture that in each individual student as well as leading. It puts a lot of pressure on teachers, right? But it, it there's a lot of pressure on teachers. It, it's a calling. I really feel like sometimes it's calling, not just this, oh, this is my job. I'm a teacher. You're really, you're sometimes the most invested person in the child's life. And so I think there's that, that role is very important and there's a weight to it. And so it needs to have um, individual focus as well as the the collective. I completely agree. And I think it's, uh, as you said, there's lots of pressure on teachers, but it's giving that space to be mm-hmm. able to listen. I know how busy it is. You know, I, I was in um, headship role and it's, but it's just having those times to pause. I'll never forget um, this amazing eight-year-old boy who asked me a question and he was one of the really quiet students. And he said, Miss Sirinda, if you speak two languages equally, which language do you dream in? Oh. And I just thought, 
Wow, that is so powerful. Mm. And then I'm picking with him further. I thought it was literally like what language you, but he was thinking about then what fuels your dreams, your ambitions, your desires, if you have these languages and concepts, because I was talking about my identity. And that's an eight-year-old child. And by creating that space where we just have time to pause, we can allow that sort of spiritual yeah. development to happen as well. Mm. And I also think, you know, during the whole conversation, we've talked about fluidity, We've talked about the journey and how we're constantly on this journey and striving towards understanding um, our godliness. And um, I think, again, it, it always comes back to if we're in a space of educating, and we all are, right. the first thing that we actually have to do is understand who we are. Mm. And that is actually a journey. That's a that's a, a long period of growth and development. But then you can start to have the humility and the patience to to see where others are on their journey right. and how you could either support, encourage, challenge, and reflect with them um, to encourage spirituality, to encourage awareness of identity, and to encourage... Um, identification of where they are in their godliness. Yes. And I think in in your cultural identity that may be very evident and present that that's what is in, intrinsic in your relationship with the creator is that you have to reflect all the time. And for us, our cultures, that may be um, the same, but there are some children who are still uh, searching for their lost cultures, yeah. for their lost sense of identity. And as adults, when we start to discover who we are, we need to create spaces where our pupils can be in spaces where they can strive to see who they are also. Yeah. And I just want to thank you for the conversation today. Thank you for what we've learned in our conversation about you and, and about your beliefs and about how you connect to God. And I hope our listeners can do the same. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me.